Last week we began a new series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and so if you would, turn there. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles in the, in the pew rack in front of you there, it should be on page 952. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter. Uh, it was written by a man named Paul to a church that was struggling with various problems. Different issues were going on in the church. And so, in that regard, it's not all that different from any other church ever planted or formed. Sometimes I hear people talk as if there is some ideal... Uh, we, we often kind of long after this idealized church, this idealized community where everybody gets along and where there are no problems, where there are no issues, there aren't any rifts. And when I hear those conversations, uh, when I have those conversations with people, I like to remind them that every single letter in the New Testament, pretty much after Acts chapter 2, the wheels kind of come off, right? That they're... That that almost every single letter in the New Testament is addressed to issues that are happening in local churches. And so letters like 1 Corinthians are very instructive for us as we try to figure out, okay, what is what does biblical community look like? That's what we said last week, that the word church uh, means gathering. It means assembly. So it's a group of people who are gathered together. Uh, trying their best to live out, hopefully trying their best anyway, to live out this idea of community. But what is it that gives shape to that? What is it that informs how we are, how we live this thing called church? And so we're going to, those are the questions that we're beginning to, uh, to answer as we go through Paul's letter, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Today we're going to be in verses 10 through 17. So let's give attention to God's word and let's hear what he has to say to us, his church. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say, you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you give us your help as we have heard your word read and now as we hear it preached, God, I pray that, uh, that the words that come out of my mouth would be true words, that whatever is of me uh, would be blown away uh, like the chaff, like dust. 
God, but that what is true, what is your word, would become firmly rooted in our hearts and that we would be like uh, trees planted by streams of water yielding fruit in their season. Lord, would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably well know that uh, that when a body is sick, it shows signs of being sick, right? We call those symptoms, fever, nausea, vomiting, right? Those are those are signs that the body has a disease, that something is wrong. But we are but but symptoms are just that, right? They they are simply signs. They are not the disease itself. Um not long after our Knox was born, my wife uh, began having trouble holding food down. It's kind of a nasty affair, right? She felt uh, worn out, uh, and we went to the doctor. He gave her some medicine, but it didn't quite fix what was wrong. Something, something much deeper than we realized was wrong with her. What had happened, unbeknownst to us, is that a stone from her gallbladder uh, had plugged a certain duct. And so all of the enzymes that were intended to come out of the pancreas uh, and help digest food were actually being bounced back into the pancreas and digesting it. That's a disease we call pancreatitis, and it can be fatal if not corrected, if not caught. And so, of course, we went to the hospital. We spent a few days there, and, you know, by God's grace, you know, Rebecca didn't die uh, to pancreatitis. But it took a minute to figure out where exactly those symptoms were coming from, right? A good doctor has to follow the symptoms. We don't want to just treat the symptoms. We want to treat the disease. We want to follow the signs that lead to the disease. And so Paul, like a good doctor, uh, is using what he sees to try to, uh, in the Corinthian church, to try to track down what exactly the disease is. And what he sees in them, what he sees happening is division. And so what we're going to see today is that when we lose sight of Christ and his cross, we lose sight of what it is that binds the church together. What it is that makes the church the church? Every community has to have a binding agent, right? Something something that lashes them together. So uh, I run with an older gentleman named Cecil. Uh, if If and we are a part of the same running club. That really sounds weird to some of you that we like get up early in the morning and just go run. And then we come back. It's, it is kind of strange, but it's fun. Right. Now, if I were kayaking and Cecil was running, we would not be in a running club together. Right. We would be doing different things. We can't do those side by side, at least not in Clanton. So uh, every community has to have something that binds it together. And my contention is that for the church, the ultimate binding is Christ and his cross. When we lose sight of that, when we take our eyes off the cross and we put them on to something else, we begin to lose the church. We're going to look at this in two ways, pretty simple. First, we're going to talk about the problem of divisions. What exactly was happening in Corinth and how we see that happening in our day, in our community, right? Div divisiveness, strife, quarreling is actually a pretty... And there it goes. They'll lose again. Uh, quarreling is a pretty natural human behavior. All right. We tend to fight better than we tend to get along. And so we're going to see, we're going to look and see what that was like in Corinth. 
And then the second thing we're going to see is the remedy of the cross. How does the crucifixion uh, address the problem of division, the quarrels in the church? So the problem of divisions and the remedy of the cross. Let's talk about what was going on in Corinth. Look at uh, uh, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Literally, that all of you say the same thing, right? That you would be one in speech, because that's what they weren't. What does that look like? First, negatively, he says, right, that for all of you to agree, first, that there should be no divisions among you. Now, the word Paul uses here is a, is a word from the, is a word about clothing. It means literally to tear apart, to rend. And so what Paul is saying is happening in the church is that they are tearing the fabric of the church. Paul says there doesn't need to be any tearing among you. Uh, the garment is splitting. Something is tearing the fabric of the Corinthian church apart. And then positively, he says um, that you... You need to be united. Here we are are again, another fabric word. You need to be mended. Mended, brought together in the same mind and the same judgment. Think about it. What what are you doing when you sew, if you sew, right? When someone sews, because I don't, but if you were to sew, what's happening, right? You're taking two pieces of fabric and you are uniting them together with a common thread, right? You're bringing them together to use the body metaphor. What are you doing when you apply sutures or when you, when you stitch a wound up, right? You're bringing flesh back together so that it heals itself. That's, that's the metaphor that Paul is using, right? He's saying, I want you to be joined together. Stop tearing the garment apart and bring it back together. I want you to be joined together in the same mind and judgment or or purpose. How do we do that? How do we say the same thing? How do we agree in mind and judgment? Well, look at how Paul appeals to them in verse 10. First, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say, I command you. He says, I urge you. I appeal to you. Right? He doesn't say, get along or so help me. Right? He's appealing to them. He's urging them. This is what is good. It is pleasing to God and good for you. I urge you by the name. Look at the foundation of this appeal. By the name of our Lord Jesus. He's, he's appealing to the mutual lordship, right? He's saying, I belong to Jesus and you belong to Jesus. Based on that mutual belonging, I need you to agree. I need you to be united, to be brought together. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But first, so the problem in Corinth, at least the presenting problem, the symptom maybe, is the the forming of division. Something is tearing the garment of the church apart. Where's it coming from? Look at verse 11. Paul has gotten a report from uh, Chloe's people, uh, people who probably belong to her house. And the report that he has gotten is that there's quarreling, there's fighting, there's strife. 
And he says this in verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Literally, it says, I'm with Paul. So uh, each one of you says, I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos or I'm with Cephas or I'm with Christ. Right. So you have everybody in the church claiming a different leader. Claiming a different head, right? Some, everybody has kind of latched on and formed a group around some different leader in the church. Not too different from celebrity preachers in our own day, right? Everybody, everybody loves to hear a certain person and without realizing it, they tend to form a faction or a group around a certain celebrity preacher, maybe. So uh, a couple of celebrity preachers have made their way through Corinth. Paul, uh, was the first. He's the one who started the church. He planted the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Uh, But then another man comes along and his name is Apollos. You'll also meet him in Acts 18 and 19. Now, you know this about Apollos. He was highly educated and he was very well spoken, right? Uh, So he's a very smart man. He's a very well spoken man. And you need to know that Corinth as a Greek city and so very much part of Greek culture loved rhetoric. That means rhetoric is the art of speaking persuasively, right? Using using powerful words, using public speaking to commend people. And Apollos was very good at that. He was a very good rhetorician. He was a very good communicator and public speaker. And so some people within the church had started to say, Oh, well, I like him. You know what? He's a lot better than Paul. He speaks a lot more persuasively than Paul. I think I, I, think I want to follow Apollos. And then uh, another teacher had come through, another church leader had come through, and his name was Cephas. That's the Greek name for Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' original disciples. Uh, and in the book of Acts, he comes to be called the, uh, the apostle to the Jews, right? He was from Jerusalem and for a time helped lead the church in Jerusalem. We don't know when he came through Corinth, But he did at some point, and when he did, it appears that maybe a number of the Jews, particularly in Corinth, were like, ah, the mighty Peter. You know, he actually, he actually walked with Jesus for three years. Now he's got some serious credentials. You know, Paul, Paul just saw a vision of the risen Jesus. He didn't actually, he didn't actually like physically walk with Jesus. You know what? I want to follow, I want to follow Paul. I think Paul, I mean, I want to follow Peter. I think, I think Peter's got it all together. And so another group has been forming, uh, probably with many of the Jewish Christians around Peter. And then it appears there was a group who said, oh, well, I'm with Christ. Now, uh, just to give you an illustration, uh, Brian Regan is a comedian, uh, and he has a sketch about the me monster, right? Uh, and the me monster is that guy in a conversation who always has to one-up other people, right? He's the, he's the one, like his story's always better. What he did is always better than what you did, right? And, and Regan says, you know, the guy who walked on the moon would be like the ultimate me monster. You know, like when he comes into a conversation, you know, the other guy's like, you know, the wife and I, we, uh, we backpacked through the Grand Canyon last week. Oh, really? I walked on the moon. You know, like there's no way to top that. Okay. Um, this group right here, because they say I'm with Christ. No, no, no. no. They're, they're just being super spiritual. You know, like they're like, oh, oh, you're with Paul. Well, I'm with Christ. 
right? They're not actually better. They're just pretending that they're better, right? They're, they're giving the impression that they're rising above when really they're just creating their own little faction over here. And so you see all of these splits, all of these different factions, these divisions in the church uh, forming around a different uh, figureheads, different leaders. And we recognize that tendency, don't we? I mean, don't we, don't we like to form camps? Don't we like to, to, to kind of wall off uh, against other people, you know, find people that we agree with and we kind of wall off and beat our chest and say, oh, this is who we are, right? And we're, we're, our camp is better than your camp, right? You actually see that tendency going all the way back in the Old Testament, uh, all the way back to Genesis, uh, particularly after the Tower of Babel, every, everybody kind of walling off and, and defending their own tribe and territory. And so... Uh, this is not a new problem. And, and we should say, right, that forming a group around good principles is not a bad thing. Forming a group for the right reasons, finding something good to unite around is a good thing, right? Or else the church would not exist because it's what the church is. The problem is that these people had forgotten what really bound them together and they had begun to find other things, right? They had begun to place their identity, for instance, in being a Jewish Christian who followed Peter. Or a well-spoken, well-educated Corinthian who followed Apollos. Everybody's pulling apart, right? They're, they're beginning to take their identity off of Jesus and put it on someone else in something else and so form a group. Right? And therefore, beginning to tear the fabric of the church. How do we do that in, in 2018? Right? We do it politically. Or we do it socioeconomically. Right? That, uh, what happens, right? We begin to, and we begin to put our identity on something secondary. And sometimes it's a good thing. Right? Politics are necessary. I sometimes wonder if they're a necessary evil, but, right? Governing is necessary, and good principles for governing are necessary. And yet, right, when we begin to place our identity in the wrong corner, we begin to slowly but surely, maybe not so slowly, look down our nose, right, at other people. Oh, they don't have it figured out like I've got it figured out. (laughs) They're not nearly as mature as I am. If they could just see it my way, we'd all be good, right? We begin to, we begin to wall off and we begin to look down our nose in superiority over other people. And it's because we've rooted our identity in something wrong, something that isn't Christ, something that isn't God. We could say this, pride ruins community. Pride ruins community, right? Because these people were already a group, they were already a community, But they had begun to find reasons to be proud over other members of the community. Well, I've made better life decisions than you've made. So, (laughs) clearly you're not as far along as I am, right? They had forgotten that being brought into this community of the church meant that they were brought in by grace. And so there was no place for pride. There was no place for boasting. Pride ruins and destroys community. Now, some would say, well, does that mean we just agree at all cost? 
Do we form unity? Do we have unity and the, and at the price at the expense of truth? Right? Uh, do we, or to put it another way, do we have unity at the expense of purity? Because some would say, right, well, we need to lop off some truth, we need to lop off some purity so that we can get along, right? We need to ignore some things that are pretty important so that we can get along. And that's not, that's not true, right? We don't forfeit purity to gain unity. In fact, when our elders take the oath of office, right, we take the oath to safeguard the peace, the purity, and the unity of the church. All three are important, But these people weren't really using uh, truth in that way. These weren't truth issues that were... In fact, they were ignoring the truth, right? Typically, when we see people who are are poo-pooing the idea of unity, they tend to use truth like a weapon, right? They don't use truth like a... They don't use truth as a weapon against the sin in their own hearts. Uh, They use truth as a weapon of superiority over other people. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Rather than using truth to combat the lies in my own heart and then in yours, if I'm operating out of pride, I use my truth as a pedestal from which I can assert superiority over you. But that's not how Jesus intends for us to use the truth. Flip over to Matthew chapter 7 real quick. Matthew chapter 7. One of the uh, uh, parts of this are probably one of the most misunderstood uh, verses in the Bible and therefore poorly applied. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, we see how truth ought to be used, right? We see how Jesus wants us to relate to each other in the church. The first thing he says is... uh, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, that verse right there is the one that is most often misused, okay? Uh, there, the word judgment has several different shades of meaning, okay? The word judgment is used in lots of different ways in our own language and in uh, the culture of the time, right? Jesus is not saying you can't make judgments, uh, because in fact, right down in verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Well, that very command of Jesus means you've got to make a judgment. What is good? What is holy? What are pigs? What are dogs? Right? You have to make judgments. So when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, he means you're not the final judge. You don't stand in the place of condemnation over another human being. That is God himself. Let's keep going. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying that the way that we are meant to use truth in God's community is first to diagnose our own sin. Right? We look inward first and before, uh, before I approach a brother or a sister, I gotta look inward first and say, what is the log in my eye? Right? What is the two by four sticking straight out of my head? 
And once I've dealt with that before the Lord, which, hey, that requires some humility, does it not? Some self-examination and to say, I am not, uh, I am not Jesus, I am not better than anyone, right? Then, and only then, am I, do I get to go uh, point out to you the speck of sawdust in your eye. So i got to deal with the two-by-four of my own before I can go to the speck of sawdust in yours. That's what biblical community is meant to look like. Not that we don't use truth, but that we use truth in the way that Jesus calls us to, which is to help one another get closer to Him. That requires humility rather than pride. So that's the problem, right? Pride is causing divisions in the body. Pride is causing factions and strife and quarreling as the different people wall themselves off and look down at others and tear the garment. So how does Paul suggest that we mend those tears? How do we unite instead of divide? He asked them three questions. Look at verse 13. The first one is this. Is Christ divided? Right, so uh, Paul's first question, is Christ divided? What they are doing is they're, they're creating factions. They're creating little groups. They're looking for reasons. They're looking to, dis, to disunity, right? What, how can we not agree? How can we separate? And Paul confronts them with unity, right? He says, he says how, is Christ divided? There's no way that you can be divided, if Christ is one, then you are one. Later on in 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to use the metaphor of the body. He says Christ is a body. And it is unnatural and unhealthy to divide the body. Right? Healthy people, and I don't mean this in a, and I don't mean this in a, um, in a shaming way, but it is unhealthy to harm your own body. We acknowledge that. Psycho- psychologically, we acknowledge that, right? It, that, is a, that is an unhealthy thing to do. There is help for that. And in the same way, Paul is saying, it is unhealthy what you are doing. Christ is not divided. Christ is one. Therefore, you can't be divided. If you are in Christ, uh, then you are one with each other. Here's what this means. It means that there is as much, um, I don't want to put this. There is no difference between me and you. The same Jesus who lives in me lives in you. The difference in our gifts does not make one of us more Jesus and the other less. Christ is equally in all of his people, regardless of what gifts may or may not be there. And that was an issue in Corinth, right? Some of them had special gifts and they were using those gifts to make much of themselves. And so Paul is saying, no, 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 Christ isn't divvied up, right? Some people don't have 80% and some 20%. Christ is not divvied up and spread out. He is, he is the same throughout his church. Second question Paul asks. He says, so the first question he asks, is Christ divided? The second is, was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? What Paul is saying is, and these are all rhetorical questions. That means the answer is implied in the question. I remember a, a college class one time where like one of the students didn't really get that. And so like the professor would use a rhetorical question. And there was one guy in the class who would always answer it. So like, hey, are we going to eat lunch today? Well, does the Pope wear a funny hat? Yes. 
You don't have to say yes. It's just part of the question, right? It's built in. It's a rhetorical question. Same here, right? Paul's answer is implied in the question. Is Christ divided? Of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. What's Paul saying? He's saying no one else can be your savior. I am not crucified for you. Apollos wasn't crucified for you. No one else can pay for you. No one else is your redeemer. Right? So what that says is that the crucifixion levels the playing field. What it does is it says that, that none of us, uh, none of us has the role of redeemer. None of us can earn that role. We're all, as the, as the saying goes, the foot, uh, the foot of the cross is level ground. Right? Uh, no one else is crucified. No one else can be your savior. And then Paul's third question. Were you baptized into Paul? Now, why in the world does he bring up baptism? What does that mean? Baptism is the way that you were initiated into the community. To be baptized into someone's name meant that that person was your Lord. And we know from Matthew 28 that Jesus commanded the apostles to baptize people in the name of of God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means that when you were baptized, you belong to God. Now, what it looks like maybe happening is that people in the church are saying like, well, I was baptized by Paul. Oh, well, I came to the faith later. I was baptized by Peter. And Paul's saying like, it doesn't matter who threw the water on you. If you were baptized into the name of Jesus, you belong to Jesus. No one else can be your king. Right? So those three questions really have three responses or are three responses to our disunity. The first is no one else can be your body, right? You are in Christ, you belong to him, right? No one else can be your savior. Nobody else has been crucified for you. And no one else can be your king. If you're baptized into the name of Jesus, no one else rules you and no one else rules the church. I do want to point out that uh, he baptized the whole household of Stephanus, except the children, because children wouldn't have been counted part of the household, right? All right. Um, anyway, this is an, this this would be a place I would point to say infant baptism is in the New Testament, right here, household baptism, Stephanus. So we can talk about that later. Um, I don't want to appear superior to anybody. It's really easy to win a fight when you're the only one with a microphone. All right. So, no one else is your body, no one else is your savior, no one else can be your king. What does this mean? How, do, how then does the cross apply to our disunity? How do we find unity in the cross? At least one way we can apply this in our, in our church, in our day and age. Because of the cross, we can fight for each other rather than against each other. We can fight for each other rather than against each other. How do we do that? First, remind yourself that you are one for whom Christ had to die. You are a person that Christ had to die for. There is nothing in you that makes you qualitatively superior to another human being. You might have made better life choices. You might be better off economically. You might even have better politics, right? You, there's a, you might be more mature in Christ. You may have walked with Jesus longer. 
But you, all of those things aside, all of those are circumstantial to the fact that Jesus still had to die for you. You are still a wretched sinner. Saved by grace and only by grace. Remind, we need to remind ourselves of that. When we are in a conflict with a brother or sister in the church, the first thing we do is we remind ourselves that we had to be died for. Someone had to pay the debt for for us. Nobody earns a right standing before God except Jesus. And if my position with God is given to me as a gift, then that levels the ground on which I approach you. Right? If I differ with you, if there's a brother I differ with or a sister that you're gossiping about, remember that everyone stands on the same level ground at the cross. That there is no room for superiority. And then second, the way that we fight for each other rather than against each other is that you remind yourself that Christ cannot be divided. That it is unnatural to harm the body. It is unnatural for me to think ill of you. That is not how we are meant to live together. And so we must address the issues between us. We cannot let, we cannot let these things fester, right? We have to love one another enough to bridge the gap of our conflict. All right? So Christ cannot be divided. But finally and most importantly... How do we uh, how do we fight for each other rather than against each other? Look at verse seventeen. Paul Paul really clarifies what it is the church is about. He says, "Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news." That's one word in the Greek. He sent me to evangelize. Right? He sent me to proclaim the good news. That is what defines the church. Right? He, he says, I don't even care who else I baptize. It's really not important. Not that baptism is not important. I'm just saying that's not what makes my ministry. That's not what defines the church. What defines the church is the good news of what Jesus has done. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with words of eloquent wisdom, literally clever words lest the cross of Christ be emptied, be made of no effect. We're going to get into wisdom next week and what that means. But suffice it enough to say now that what defines the church is the good news of the cross. The main thing, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the good news of what Jesus has done at Calvary. It is the crucified and risen Christ that unites us. And so we must draw attention not to our differences. And look, Paul's not saying that that people can't have various opinions in the church, right? Um, But he is saying that at the end of the day, those opinions, those differences pale in comparison to the cross. The shadow and shape of the cross form everything else about the church. It is the good news found there that unites us. And so we want to draw attention to Him again and again. As we come to the table, you even need to realize that the the table is a cross-shaped table. Right? Not actually cross-shaped. But 
that the elements on the table are meant to remind us of the crucifixion, right? When we say that the juice is Jesus's blood and the the bread is Jesus's body, that reminds us that we are a people who live under a sacrifice. We live under the cross of Jesus, shaped by the cross of Jesus. And so even as we come to the table, we need to remember that this is a cross-shaped community and that to find our place in it, we first have to find our place in Christ. We cannot come to the table unless we first come to the cross. We cannot, we cannot eat and drink, we cannot participate in Jesus' body and blood unless we first are participants in His cross. And so as I invite you to the table, I'm going to pray and we're going to um, distribute the elements in just a second. As I invite you to the table, this is my invitation and warning to you. That this table is open to everyone who is in Christ. It is not for the super saints, right? It is not for those who have it all together. Uh, nor uh, is it for those who only have been able to manage all their public and viewable sins, right? No, it is a table for sinners because it is a table who need, for, for those who need a Savior, It is the table of Jesus. So if you are a sinner, if you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, and you acknowledge that Jesus is the only one who can save you, then the table is for you. If you belong to this church, this table is for you. But there is a warning that goes with it, because it is not a light and trifle thing to participate in the crucifixion of Jesus. If you are uh, if you are participating in ongoing and unrepentant sin, that means you're you're not sorry for the sin that you're in. Then I would urge you to abstain from the table. If you have not professed faith in Jesus, and so this would be directed at our children, parents. If your children have not yet professed faith in Jesus, then the table is not for them. It is a table for those who acknowledge that they're sinners and that they need a Savior. It is a table, in other words, for those who need grace. And if you need grace this morning, this table is for you. Let's pray.